1: What is it like to be the Trump rally? Are these rallies just a safe space to bring out the ugliness in people? Is there any hope for America? The only question left is: Say it with me. You win. Hey, sports fans! Coach Nick here, and welcome to the B-ball Breakdown podcast. I am excited to get a little bit off-topic from the basketball world today to get into something that is certainly on the minds of, I would imagine, most Americans. Certainly on Twitter, we've had an amazing conversation in the last several weeks about it. So I wanted to bring on a guest Named Jared Yates Sexton, who is an assistant professor in creative writing at Georgia Southern University and a contributor to The New Republic, which is where I came across him originally, although also on Twitter. So, Jared, thanks for coming on the show. And I thought we could talk about what you've been doing recently, which is basically covering Trump rallies and the convention.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've been doing this since last year. I've been going to basically every rally that I can make it to, every rally that I can sort of drive to and get to in between my normal job. And uh, I just got back from the convention in Philadelphia, actually.
1: Wow. So it sounds like a crazy experience to be able to do this several times. I feel like most Americans, if they go to a rally, they'll go to just like one right to experience. So. How do you think that's, that's an influence the way you process these by seeing these things over and over?
2: Well, you know, um, I I originally wanted to do this to sort of throw my hat into this arena and sort of understand what this election was. Um, When I originally decided to do this, it it was looking like Clinton versus Bush, and that felt like a very sort of boring matchup, and I wanted to find a way to sort of like wade into it and understand the forces that were maybe underneath it. And somehow or another, I feel like I sort of stumbled onto an amazing story, especially with the Trump rallies that – I would go into the crowd instead of standing with the usual media group, which are usually pinned behind like this little weird area. So uh, I decided earlier on that I was going to go into these rallies and events as a sort of a spectator.
1: Aha! So that's an interesting thing. That that certainly is what you've captured. Now, as a creative writer and a creative writing, you know, assistant professor. Uh, you know, I, I imagine tone and voice are extremely important to you when you're developing your when you're writing your stories. And what I reacted to uh, having a little a bit of a background in, in creative writing myself was is that voice that you created. And, you know, I kind of wanted to describe it as um, a cross between like Sisyphus and, you know, Charlie Brown with a cloud over his head. Uh, you know, you just it's just there seems to be. It's not complete exasperation where you want to just scream to the to the you know to the like the, the camera shot way above your head, but it definitely feels like you're, you're you're tilted forward a little bit, your head is down, and you have this sort of weight on your shoulders as you go through it, uh, and it's not anger. Now, is, would that be correct to say that you don't really feel necessarily anger when you're walking through these these Trump rallies?
2: You know, it's funny you you say it like that. I, I it's kind of exactly how I felt, but I haven't been able to put it in those words, like the Charlie Brown walking through the rainstorm feeling. Um, when I when I started this, um, I was sort of disgusted with politics. It's one of the reasons that I wanted to do this in the first place. Is I kind of wanted to, um, I guess, look at like the decline of politics in America or whatever. And so I was looking forward to this being, you know, more of the usual BS that we kind of see in the in the process. And then I got there and it was so much worse it was so much uglier than i imagined it to be and i i got to these trump rallies and i've seen so much horrid stuff that i couldn't believe that this existed right i couldn't believe that uh this was actually what was in the heart of people and how people were actually reacting to this and i was i was more disappointed in them right i was i was very very angry on the inside, but it, I, I tried to filter that through like an empathetic lens. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, these these are my people. I grew, grew up in a working class family in, in Indiana. And so I recognize where some of these people are coming from. But I'm just so disappointed in them. And I, I want so much better from them that, yeah, I think there's a little bit of apocalyptic tone in it. But there's also that sort of like, come on, let's let's do better here.
1: Well, let's, let's discuss in detail a little bit, you know, what about – their behavior, what they're saying needs to be done better because I don't know if a lot of people, you know, have gone to these rallies and seen they probably see a very sanitized version of something, you know, on, on the news. So, you know, give us an take us there and give us some, some, some examples of what you're seeing that's, you know, really troublesome. Sure. Um, you know, I've
2: been, to, I've been to quite a few Trump rallies at this point. And the, the funniest thing about it is, and I think anybody who appreciates writing or, or narrative will understand this, like they're escalating. Right? In the beginning, it was sort of this thing where it's like, oh, let's go and see what the spectacle is. And then somehow or another, this campaign sort of like uh, um, avalanched into something more. It caught on to some sort of ugliness inside of people. Um, The first actual Trump rally that I went to was the night that he announced the proposed Muslim ban. And that took place in South Carolina on a battleship or an aircraft carrier, one or the other. And it got so disgusting. I was shocked by it. Afterwards, um, the people were so amped up by what he had said and his sort of like creeping xenophobia that they went outside and they were threatening protesters. They were telling them that they were going to go back to their, their cars and trucks and get their guns and shoot them. I had a guy next to me who looked at like a decommissioned turret gun and he he you know nudged me and he said, I wish that thing worked right about now. So from the very beginning, it was like this idea of malice, this idea of like uh, uh, anger, and then I, I kept seeing it grow. Like it became, um, you know, homophobic stuff. The misogyny really took off when Clinton became the clear front runner in the Democratic Party. I've heard every type of slur you can imagine, every racist, homophobic, misogynistic slur imaginable. I mean, they're calling for Clinton to be hung, executed, shot. You know, they're calling the president uh, racial slurs. And it's just this casual
1: misogyny and casual hatred that
2: is just sort of like brewing over.
1: So is it that casualness that that indicates to you that they, they actually believe it? And it's not just sort of acting out in this sort of way where, you know, like, you know, like it's a weird thing. Like, you know, it reminds me of a little bit of. You know, and this is a stretch, but, you know, back when um, when things uh, started falling apart in Iraq, when we when they when we went in and got rid of Saddam and, and all sorts of stuff was happening with the actual the Iraqis looting, raping, pillaging, all these terrible things. And so the question for me was, were, were these people just sitting in their homes for years while Saddam was, you know, in power, like waiting to rape and pillage and do all these horrible things? And then the second they had a chance to do it, they just did it. And in some weird, bizarre way my mind connects this, is this sort of the thing where it's all latent and it was tamped down and then as soon as Trump comes on the scene, he unleashes it? Or is it something that it still exists like, we, like it, that existed in the 40s and the 50s here?
2: You know, it's, I, I think that's exactly what it is. I wrote an editorial in the New York Times that basically said that Trump has given them permission. He's he's become this sort of safe space around which they can sort of like coalesce. And I think the people who support Trump, and, and and by the way, I don't want to sit here and say that every Trump supporter is awful and ugly, right? There are some people who are making this decision based on politics, they're making it from a pragmatic standpoint, they're making it from you know, they, they can make anti-trade statements with this guy, you know what I mean? But there is definitely a group of these people who they have basically been told by society for years now that the way that they feel and the way that they want to communicate and the, and what they hold in their hearts is inappropriate right society is going to shun it society is going to throw it out if you say these things in public you'll lose your job you'll be stripped of, of your social holdings people will you know throw you on the outside of society um, now Trump basically stands for the acceptance of this stuff. It's, it's this place where you can say the word Trump and if you have a Trump sign, it means I'm okay with that, right? I'm comfortable with you saying and doing these things and holding these beliefs Um, he, I don't even think it actually has anything to do with him. He's actually quite boring. He's boorish. Uh, you know, people leave his rallies early because they don't even like really get into it. I mean, the guy stands up there and like, you know, beats his palm with his poll numbers and ratings and all this stuff. Um, it's not about him. It's about, they finally have this, uh, this lightning rod that they can all stand around and find protection from society, and I think that they they've really, really reveled in that. It's like identity politics, only the exact opposite of like political correctness, right? Mm-hmm. It's finally they can find their sort of tribe of politically incorrect.
1: Um, let me ask you this: as far as the the type of people that are doing all the the most disagreeable, you know, statements and saying those, and, and feeling those things, do you feel like there's a connection between that and maybe um, a, a limit to their education? Mm-hmm. As far you know, as yeah, yeah. Well,
2: I, I the funniest thing about this is, um, every, and whenever I'm interacting with people on Twitter, or whenever I'm talking to to journalists about my experience, it's always assumed that what I'm talking about are like poor working class white people. But the funniest thing about it is Trump's port is kind of a, a, a U shape, right? You have these poor white working class people who are just you know pissed off, right? But then you have this other group where it's become all of a sudden this weird sort of yuppie, preppy fashiondom to show up at these Trump things. Right, it's finally somebody isn't going to criticize them for being well faced. Someone's not going to criticize them for sort of looking down on the uh, you know the quote unquote deserved poor. They're coming to these rallies in like the you know the textbook preppy fashion. They're coming out in like docksiders with no socks and khakis and (laughs) and blue blazers, and they're putting on these cheap Make America Great hats, and. It's basically like an event for them. So it's strange because it sort of straddles all of these weird social barriers and financial barriers that it normally wouldn't. I mean, a large group of them are what you would assume them to be. But there's a lot of people who are showing up who just don't meet that criteria.
1: But are the preppy ones and those guys also spewing the misogynist uh, and racist stuff as well?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, they definitely are. It's like a good time in this city. You know, it's like uh, I went to uh, this one in Greensboro, which is the one that got me the most, most attention. And by the way, it also includes college guys, right? There's a lot of college guys who show up to these rallies. They'll sit out in the parking lot and they'll tailgate, right? And, you know, then they'll leave the event and they'll just scream Trump and, and all this stuff and they'll, they'll display flags. It's an event for them, right? It's a chance for them to come out and basically behave badly the way, the same way that like a fraternity party gives them permission to sort of act out.
1: And you know, it's funny, it's exactly what, you know, I, I'm embarrassed when I mentioned that I was in a fraternity in college because I really, uh, w- not proud of a lot of the time I spent there, but um, that's exactly what it feels like to me. And that actually brings me to another point, which is, or two different things, is when you were live tweeting um, probably that event, and that's when I first, I think, became aware of what you were doing, Um, It seemed like a lot of the blowback uh, on Twitter became, you know, that you were lying and making this stuff up. Uh, And so then it looks like I think those are, are those your YouTube clips that you added into your articles or is that someone else's?
2: yeah those are mine okay. uh, after that I've basically tried to document every single thing I do to be honest with the Greensboro rally. I had no clue that thing was going to take off the way it was mm-hmm. when I walked into the greensboro uh, convention Center I think that's the name of it uh, when I walked in, I had fourteen hundred Twitter followers, and I you know I was basically doing this as a side project. I was going to have a small independent press publish a collection of these essays and stuff. I never really expected it to be anything else. I kind of expected to have it to be a thing that you you know, maybe I would show my future kids and maybe like 15 people would buy uh, it never even occurred to me that I needed to document this for some sort of posterity or proof uh, since then I've been trying to get everything possible on mm-hmm. video
1: so and then can you uh, you know give us an insight like what were some of the things that you were reporting that people were really freaking out about and saying that you know it wasn't happening?
2: Well, the big thing and you know, I've had a lot of time since then I've been on the road and and I've been in this weird little media storm afterwards, right? So I've had a lot of time to try and consider exactly what's happened to me in the past month and how this came about. I think what got the most attention and I think this was Uh, I want to say like three or four days after the Orlando shooting. What I overheard that I think really got the attention of people was somebody in the crowd, whenever uh, a speaker was saying that, you know, we have the support of the LGBT community or whatever, somebody in the crowd, I think, jokingly said the gays had it coming. And that sort of resonated with people because I think it was sort of this thing that everyone sort of assumed that they felt. Right. And then afterwards, I was I, it was after the rally, I was walking out into the parking lot and it was just rapid fire it was one thing after another people reacting to, to the speech. I heard somebody say that immigrants are not people. I heard, you know, somebody else say that you can't trust Muslims, uh, you know, all this weird sort of psychobabble that had sort of like run downstream from the Trump speech. And it just turned into like a really like unbelievably awful scene.
1: Okay, I can imagine. And so the, the blowback in the beginning on, on Twitter then became, where are you? What do you look like? You weren't there. I didn't hear any of that, right? Like, which, which um, it, I suppose it was possible there were people that went, maybe didn't hear some of the things that you did. It's probably, I mean, there was probably a lot of people there, right? Well, that's
2: the other thing about it is everybody would link to like picture a uh, video of Trump's speech, right? And this is one of the biggest problems with how the media has portrayed Trump. They go to this media pin, which is where they're completely isolated, right? And they have their cameras on him and they have one mic. And the mic is what Trump is speaking through. You hear the crowd as sort of like a rabble-rabble, right? You don't really hear what the crowd is saying people weren't sending reporters into the crowd to hear what people were saying and and you're in this scrum where people are interacting and they're feeding off of each other and you know, it's sort of like the the psychology of crowds. You hear one person say something awful, another person responds, and then somebody else takes it to like a new level, right? Which actually is sort of Trump's campaign in the microcosm. But you have people in the stands who have no clue what anybody's saying on the ground. They have no idea even what somebody, a couple people away from them are saying. So I, I think it was a lot of people people uh and, and you know there were different people there were the trump supporters there were neo-nazis there were men's rights advocates and they were all coming at me with different things but i think the people who wanted to claim that it didn't really happen are people who support trump but they don't want to admit that they're in bed with these people right that that they're part of a a, a coalition that includes like people with that sort of ugliness in them
1: you know, speaking of the, the YouTube uh, clips that you had tried to, for documentation, one of them I was watching is a guy, uh, an older guy sitting there. And there's these two young guys who look like, like fraternity guys, not to generalize, but, or, or look like they're military, like, you know, that sort of look. And, you know, but they were kind of meatheads. But what, what, what struck me about with how they were, like, heckling this guy is that it, it felt like seventh grade uh, heckling. You know, the kind of thing where – and by the way, so two things. So one, you know, so it felt like seventh grade, like they're just trying to like, you know, get him to say something. Whatever they say, whatever he says doesn't matter. They're going to now make fun of you and like yell out to the crowd, oh, we have a pedophile here, pedophile right here. Make sure there's no kids around. And it really felt like like so immature, which is why I started to feel sad. I'm just like, this is just sad. How can these – these guys are obviously in their 20s or maybe late 20s and doing this – so, but you also hear them say at some point, there's a quick thing where a guy says something about that there's some notion of tolerance of gay people with what he said. Like, uh, nothing wrong with it, but you're da, 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 da. And so my, my wonder is, has this 50s, 40s, 30s, whatever horrible mindset we used to have back before civil rights, has that evolved to still engender the hate but somehow also can house some sort of uh, acceptance of certain things as well?
2: you know it's funny that that video you're talking about was from the republican national convention and it was outside on like what's called the public square and those types of incidents were happening happening all over the place people just came to cleveland in order to have like you know a clash of ideas i don't even really know why they came it was like they came for to get a piece of the action right and to go along with that what i think has happened and um Last month, I actually, after this whole thing blew up, I went to a uh, Clinton-Warren rally in Ohio, and I took a complete stranger, who is like a a DNC county, or a a RNC county official that i had never met before. I drove all the way to Ohio and back with him in order to get to know a complete stranger I don't agree with. Right? I wanted (laughs) to see if we could actually talk as people. And one thing that he said that stuck with me is that, the problem that we have with political correctness in this country is that it is turned into a prosecuting tool, which is where people understand that if they say a certain thing, that they're going to be ostracized. So what they do is they code shift, right? they're able to say those things that are appropriate when they're around other people, but when they're in private and when they're comfortable they'll say the things that would normally, you know, uh, result in consequences. So what you're actually seeing with a lot of these people, especially when they notice cameras are around or when media is around, they're having a hard time sort of balancing the difference between political correctness and how they actually feel and so they're having to actually sort of like mix the two in this weird clumsy dance right Mm -hmm. where they're saying really really terrible things like so for instance the One of the guys you're talking about was making fun of this guy's sexuality the whole time, right? Or perceived sexuality. And then he would say stuff like, well, that doesn't bother me, but, right? And then he would go on to say some sort of more homophobic slur, like later on when I talked to him. And it's this strange schizophrenic dance where I think PC culture or progressivism has moved so far that people have actually had to convince themselves, well, that's too far, but I'm not in violation of it, right? I'm a good person and I don't have these sort of beliefs, but I know what's real. And so you have a lot of people who are sort of divided, I think, between their public and
1: private selves. You know, it's funny because as a coach in basketball, we talk a lot about language and how to communicate effectively. And uh, while and I and I try and coach coaches or you know give them ideas as far as that goes because I remember at one point meeting with a guy uh, who was a Tony Robbins disciple. So uh, and we all know Tony Robbins and he's you know been made fun of whatever the guy's a, just a giant and you know has has gone to the bank with what he knows so. But the key here for, for me, what I learned was that I tried to eliminate certain words that had that would like it, elicit emotional responses that were negative. Right. And it, what a lot of times, coach, especially at a certain age or older, would just say, oh, that's just new age. B.S. doesn't work. You're going to make this into a bunch of pussies and whatever. And so uh, but that, but you could watch my teams and no one would ever say that my teams were not as tough as could possibly be. And I almost feel like there's a power in the language that maybe they don't want to recognize, but it's also a power in how the language can then affect your uh, reactions and your feelings toward things, right? So, so that's why I feel like it's troublesome is that the misogynist and the homophobic stuff, while they want to couch it in, you know, oh, it's not the problem is when you then say it, you do form your brain, you do form that opinion, that is what you believe. And I think that's the root of what the political correctness movement has always been, I think. Does that make sense? No, it totally does, because, I mean, you know,
2: any linguist is going to tell you that language affects reality right? And, and, and you look at how the left and the right have been fighting for generations now about how to define things, right? Just that it's very basis, like the idea of pro-life versus pro-choice, right? Whatever you choose is the basis of your reality. And these people are actually living in two different worlds. And these conventions couldn't have proven it to me even more. We now have isolated ourselves in these communities right and we now have the option where you know we're sitting here talking over a laptop we have the option of going onto this device or on our phones and sort of manicuring our reality to suit our preferences so you have people who live over here who live a completely different existence than the people who live right next door to them and it's all based on language it's all based on uh, input and feedback and all they do all day is manicure their own existence to suit their own needs
1: we And we certainly we've seen you know there are women at these rallies, and there are women mm-hmm. who are cheering, I imagine for Trump at these rallies how have you spoken to them? Have you gotten into their mindset a little bit and understand how they, how can they can justify and rectify those two things
2: I have, and it's always a very weird cognitive discussion, right uh and and this is the strange mental gymnastic that I think has made Trump the lasting force that he is. Because I'm sure uh, I'm sure you and, and other listeners have had this moment where they're like, Trump's gone too far, right? There's the moment where it stops. I mean, this week there's proof that he might be conspiring with a foreign power, you know. And it's like people who have been against Russia for for generations are like. Well, he's not with them. And even if he was, it's not bad. You know, people who have decried Putin for years now. What's happening with, and this also takes place with women for Trump, and there's also gays for Trump. There's like all these different uh, disassociative groups that you wouldn't expect to be there. At the end of the day, what they can do, and Trump set this up and he is incredibly smart in doing so. Literally anything that would challenge their opinion or would challenge their support, they can couch it by saying, well, that's what the media says, right? And then all of a sudden you have this reality where it's like, well, anything that this side says makes me – here more right it makes me more concrete and you can sit there and you can show i've actually shown people quotes from trump i've pulled up his twitter i've pulled up videos and i've said this is what he has said right this and i've gone to evangelicals and i've shown them video of him talking about his affairs and seducing women and and all of this stuff it doesn't matter It's just manipulated. It's all out of context. And so what they have is they have an unwielding faith in this person and an unwielding suspicion of anybody who would come against him that they have actually sort of buried their identity in him to the point where they will deny actual reality.
1: You know, it's funny because this is an interesting pivot to then Hillary, who for the same reason, you know, this kind of makes sense in some way. The same because you think they're so skeptical. They don't believe the media. They don't do all these things when it's negative against Trump because they want to align with him. But it's the, but then they will turn around and then accept everything they've heard about Hillary, which is – does that ever come up as – I have to imagine she comes up as much as Trump does when you're walking around. Does that how – do, how do those – is it the same thing we're talking about then? Well, I, I'll tell you
2: this. Um, one thing that I've come around on is that the reason compromise is dead in this country and the reason that actual discussion is is on life support is because you cannot compromise and you cannot discuss with Hitler. You just can't. Anything that it represents like pure evil, how could you ever even discuss with them? And then as a result, anything that they do or anything having to do with them is automatically pure evil, Right. Um, We have gotten to a point where Clinton has been sketched. And and by the way, this is no exaggeration. There are many Trump supporters who literally believe that she is inherently evil, that she has taken joy out of having people die, right? She's taken millions, if not billions of dollars from foreign governments. She's lied about this, lied about that. There are people who want to personally kill her. Right, who want to execute her for treason. They believe that she is a war criminal who is running for president. And if you believe a war criminal, if you believe a despot, if you believe like a purely evil demagogue is running for president, it's your inherent duty to do anything you can to stop them right so how could you ever meet them halfway or how could you ever accept these lies because everything comes back to the idea that this candidate is is just pure un, you know pure concentrated evil
1: and I guess it doesn't matter because, like, I, I've been getting a little bit on Twitter as well how she is a felon and she's a liar, whatever. And it's like, well, how many different government agencies that have to investigate her and tell and say that there isn't anything illegal before you understand that, you know, this is what the – you know because the thing is with Trump, he's calling for a law and order state, right? That's what he wants to bring us back to when the very definition of law and order is that – if you're investigated and they don't find any, you know, um, any wrongdoing, then you are innocent. There is no there is no notion of this. And it's been happening since she began her the process in 92, probably before that. Um, I, I guess that's the same, the same kind of dissonance. They're not going to simply accept that. They're going to know more than what the FBI knows, I suppose. what that's that's what it feels like.
2: Well, yeah, I don't know how familiar you are with conspiracy theorists right these people who who uh, who live their entire lives based in this augmented reality where there's like people pulling the strings or everything has some sort of a, a, an explanation that has to do with manipulation right one of the most fascinating narratives of this election is how Donald Trump's ascendancy has very little to do with the Republican Party, right? He's getting a, a portion of the Republican Party, but he's actually augmenting this whole thing with, like, the conspiracy right. And they call him alt-right. These are people who believe, you know, 9-11 was an inside job. They believe that Sandy Hook was a black flag operation. All these things. They believe that anytime something happens where Hillary Clinton is exonerated or isn't thrown in jail, well, obviously it's a bribe. Obviously, it's globalist interfering with U.S. politics. Obviously, there's something underhanded, and so what you're actually seeing are people who are more than willing to bend and manipulate reality to suit the narrative that they're coming from already. And so you're seeing—I um, don't know if anybody's ever heard of this thing called Infowars or Alex Jones, the 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 um, conspiracy theory mogul, right? Who, by the way, was everywhere. At the Republican convention, I mean, he, his following was only second in number to to Trump, and Trump has played a lot of footsie with that guy. He's he's definitely moved. You know, it started with the uh, the birth certificate thing. It started with this idea that the globalists in trades are trying to take over the country. This oh, just really is really quickly of, the birth
1: certificate yeah. thing being Ob- uh, Obama not being born in America,
2: right? Right. This going back. And I mean, he became a hero of that group of people when he kept calling for Obama's birth certificate and saying that he wasn't born in America. Um, He became a hero of these people. And he's carried along this weird ramshackle coalition that now will base is basically immune to anything even approaching reality if it goes against their idea.
1: Well, you know, I think that the evolution of this is it it could be two parts. I think, you know, the, the Republican Party, I think, has sort of Been has created Trump. I feel like this is sort of the Frankenstein's monster um, over the last 16 years of building up. You know this sort of. You know the the money is yours, and you don't give a crap about anybody else in the society because you're going to work hard and you're going to keep all that money you can. You know, fire department, police department, be damned, or anything like that, or even God, God forbid. You know, healthcare. Um, And I feel like uh, you know uh, misogyny and uh, certainly. uh, you know, uh, xenophobia has been developed. You know, whether or not you would call it sneakily or, um, or or right out in the open, I feel like this is the 16-year process where perhaps in the 90s during the Clinton's you know uh, run in the presidency, there was this sense of hope and they were building and our economy was going well, and I feel like that's when you know the the uh, politically correct movement kind of like had solidified. I remember in the early 90s is when it began, pretty much when I was in college. And so I feel like the 16 years of systematic and slowly eroding that. So that was almost like they're aghast at what happened and how Trump took over. But it's because they they created the situation.
2: I would even go far enough back to say it began with Barry Goldwater. I think it started back in the 1960s when Goldwater exploded on the scene and suddenly it became a thing of it's your money. Everyone else is lazy. Right. And and like all of a sudden it became us versus them as opposed to us we have a few divisions, right? We'll decide where to go from here, but we're all in it together. Mm -hmm. Nixon, of course, made it worse. Reagan played a huge role in that. Um, And then all of a sudden we get to the 1990s where you're absolutely right. We have Bill Clinton who did like miracle work with the economy he had to be taken down some way and people who disagreed with him socially had to believe that he was purely evil so all of a sudden you have the rise of right-wing media that will tell people what they want to hear of course then you have like the growth of fox news that is basically the womb that incubated trump right and it's so funny that trump is this person and i'm sure you've probably heard him say when it's like what news sources i watch watched the shows right Trump is essentially the cable news viewer brought to life like and put on a stage and just saying one thing after another that has total cognitive dissonance, but it's proven by what's on the 9 p.m. slot on Fox News. So they have actually created this person, and and I find it so – sad and cowardly that all of these republican officials are like wringing their hands and saying i don't know where this came from when they have been you know they've been benefiting from this for generations now and all of a sudden you have this situation where something that has absolutely nothing to do with politics or getting things done has sort of come to life and is now sort of cannibalizing the system they've created
1: well, you know what's funny about bringing up Goldwater and Nixon is that – and conspiracy theorists is that um, – and no one knows this, but I will now announce it. I am probably one of the <laughs> foremost JFK conspiracy guys mm-hmm. around. I Almost every night I spend an hour studying another section of it. I don't know why, but it's like so gripped me in the last like year that – in fact, I'm actually working with somebody. I may be doing a documentary about it, but – um, what's, what's your theory? What's your prevalent? Well, all right. I, I guess because it's out there enough, no one's going to steal it and make my whatever. But, <laughs> but here, OK, here's my – and then you know what? We'll, we'll take a detour because there, we'll sure get stuff. back to – it'll connect eventually because it sure. does kind of connect to Trump in a weird way. Uh, but here's what I've come across. And again, this is going to make me look insane. But – oh, I, that, I am insane. Here's the thing. Um, I believe, so the, I, believe this, I believe the CIA was was involved in, in killing JFK because after the Bay of Pigs, JFK, uh, you know, wanted to dissolve the CIA altogether. He had fired Alan Dulles, who was the head of the CIA. So Alan Dulles is now mad at him. So these are all names that are going to pop up. So I think that, you know, but, but CIA had a rule. They wouldn't kill people on American soil. They would use the mafia to do that, which is also sort of a proven thing. There's a lot of evidence mm-hmm. about that. So sure. I think the idea was, was that they wanted to kill uh, JFK and they ended up using Nixon's plumbers uh, to do it. They were the guys that actually helped uh, to uh, plan the Bay of Pigs. uh, I think were involved in JFK assassination. And I also think this is where I get, this is where I get really insane uh, is that I think they told uh, Nixon that if you help us coordinate this, then LBJ won't run in 68 and we'll let you win the presidency. Mm -hmm. And, now the weird thing about that was that Bobby got in the race in '68, sort of unexpectedly uh, late, and they took him out. And there's actually some interesting uh, evidence about whether or not that was just one guy who killed him. Mm-hmm. But then you know you look later on in the, the Warren Commission. Who, who was who was the uh, the co-chair of the Warren Commission was Alan Dulles, the guy mm-hmm. who you know was you know got fired by Kennedy and was you know probably one of his biggest enemies. So I think that that's all related um, to. To what Nixon did as well you know there and, and that connects it to, to where we we're talking about how they developed the um, and by the way what are your thoughts on that that conspiracy theory so I think
2: I, I'm one of those people who uh, um, you know I would sit here and I'd say that I'm a JFK agnostic like I'm one of those people who doesn't believe that Oswald number one acted alone or even if he did it um, I I thought there uh, what was it last year there was a really interesting documentary that popped up on Netflix I believe it was the killing of a president, I think, which is about the Secret Service agent who accidentally unloaded. Oh, Have you yeah. seen this? Yeah. I thought that was I thought that was interesting and forensically compelling, but it also doesn't feel as large as it actually is because we were sort of in love in the 1960s and 50s with the idea of manipulating democracy. Like we really, really love the idea of going into other countries and sort of moving them around and manipulating elections. So I I could sit here and and I could listen to that all day long. I I actually find the whole thing endlessly fascinating too. And I actually don't think that we're going to get any uh, answers until after you and I are long gone. I think our grandkids maybe are going to, are going to be like, what is that and why is this a big deal?
1: Really? Oh, okay. I I mean, because documents keep getting released every so often. So I think next year there's more documents. But the problem is it's a big dump. And then, you know, you know, no one has the time to go through it all. But uh, but here's what I think is interesting, because, you know, we're talking about the evolution of where Trump is and how it was sort of hatched. And I remember um, it was probably the 04 Republican convention. It had to be. I think Schwarzenegger was talking and um, he, he references Nixon as an applause line. And that was the first inkling I had, you know, that, that really took me aback. Because here is a complete rewriting of history of a president who, as we, and, and the more I look into it, because I'm looking for the connections between him and JFK. And By the way, the argument then is, is that Watergate might have been centered around that, where he mm-hmm. was trying to get at the evidence the Democratic uh, Convention had that he was involved Water. in JFK. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which is again insane and crazy. And why would they have it? But um, none of the, the, the bugging thing doesn't make sense either. So anyway, so but but there's a lot of things. He was he was he was probably going to be impeached for tax evasion, anyway. Much less illegal bombing of other cities uh, of other uh, uh, countries next to Vietnam, and then also uh, you know ordering audits of his enemies and had have, you know he was a horrible guy. And yet here we were in, in '04. Uh, at, you know, celebrating him. And that really was what took me aback. And I think that was sort of like the, what my mind starts to think about. It's like, okay, here we are where they, either as, an Amer- as Americans, we just don't have any memory. We don't care. We have no focus, attention span, which also uh, uh, applies to Trump. Um, or, or it's as simply as we are solidified and we haven't changed much at all. You know, uh, equal rights, equal rights, Um, be damned, um, the um, civil rights be damned, or any of these things. So I guess that next question is, make America great again is this big catchphrase. To me, it's filled with all sorts of horrible stuff. What era do you think that they're talking about?
2: Well, first of all, I just want to say that one of the most amazing things that I've seen is the manipulation of the Iraq war and this sort of like cultural memory of it now, like I, in this election alone, watching the Republicans somehow or another shift responsibility for the Iraq war onto Hillary Clinton is amazing. Right. But then also seeing Clinton shift responsibility for the Iraq war away from herself. Like you're seeing this generally, generationally important and, 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 uh, incredibly important event. That is now being played like soccer, right? Like, and in, 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 like, there's no truth behind it. As somebody who like protested uh, fervently against that war, it just makes my skin crawl, right? Um, in terms of making America great again, you have to think that this all takes place before the counterculture movement of the 1960s. All they do is they glamorize and fetishize the 1950s. You know, Eisenhower, America, people with manicured lawns, buying lawnmowers and refrigerators and TV sets. And meanwhile, most of America is being held underfoot. Nobody's living a life that they actually enjoy. No one's expressing themselves or enjoying a freedom that is actually free. These people want to go back to a time in America where oppression was the norm, right? They want to go back to a time where they're sort of, and and I say this knowing that you have to take responsibility for these types of things, they want to go back to a white America. They want to go back to a time where white Americans could just walk around and not feel bad about being wealthy. They could walk around and not feel bad about, you know, being cis and heteronormative and living in a patriarchal society. That's the buzzword here, is that they want to make America this place that it used to be where they weren't challenged by their decisions.
1: You know, and the irony of that is, you know who Eisenhower's vice president was, right? Yeah, Richard Richard. Nixon. So Mm -hmm. again, uh, and and meanwhile, yeah, when we really take a good look at the at the at the fifties, you know, Brown versus Board of Education was fifty four. I think, fifty-two, fifty-four. So the process of even thinking about non-segregated schools doesn't even happen until, you know, mid-50s or late. And then they had to, they had to order national guards and actually make it happen. You know, that was – I think Kennedy does that, right, against Wallace in, in mm-hmm. the 60s. So it doesn't even like really take hold until later and then certainly until 64. And so – um I, I agree I almost feel like and I, and I mentioned that I'm like you know America Great Again I had people on Twitter answer that oh you know when we won the the revolution like you know from day one and I'm like well you want to ignore the whole slavery thing I guess and, and you know well we made some mistakes you know that, that's sort of their answer to it um, but I think you're right I think that there's a I, I, it might go down to or come down to a little bit more of intelligence, the notion of, you know, the deeper you look at this and the more uh, uh, the more uh, measured uh, approach you take to looking at the reality and the history, the more you probably wouldn't feel that the 50s were really like the place, the happy days that we're looking for. And so that's why I mentioned it earlier was it, I wonder if because it seems like it's all white, right? That's certainly one thing when you're going to these rallies. Mo- you're not seeing anybody of color, are you?
2: I am seeing every now and then a person of color. And one of the things that is actually really disgusting to me is that if there is a a person there of color that the crowd sort of treats them like an anomaly, they'll go up and ask them for pictures, you know, as if to prove. Yeah, it's a really, really unfortunate thing. And and it's I I really haven't talked about it because it just every part of it makes me feel kind of nauseous. But yeah, anybody who comes to these events and they don't fit into the normal stereotype, yeah, they are treated as if they're like a picture opportunity.
1: Like going to the zoo or something. But um, or Or it's like, I have lots of black friends, like that kind of thing, right?
2: That's exactly right. And you might remember, I think it was three weeks ago that – Trump was at a rally on a tarmac, and he said, where's my African-American? There's my African-Amer- African-American. And, and it just sort of like, it's so noxious and terrible, and, and it feeds on, you know, and again, it's it's everything about that idea of, of that split personality, right? It's people saying, well, obviously I'm not racist because, but at the same time, the very definition of the act is racist.
1: Yes. Um, you know, it's funny because my father in law is a drink the Kool-Aid Republican, and and you know, yet he uh, he he socially there's a lot of things that he wa- you know he want he, he agrees with in the Democratic Party. In fact, when when Hillary laid out, uh, we were watching Sixty Minutes with her and, and uh, Kane and she laid out like what she want, like why do you want to be president? Was basically they, they had the question, and she laid it out in a very succinct and intelligent way. And I said, well, do you have, do you, do you disagree with any of that? He goes, no, it's just the way she's going to do it, and I'm like. Okay, you know, and and getting back to the notion of like when has has American uh, politics declined, it's like at this point, if she's going to be able to get these platform things done by any means necessary, then I almost don't care because that's what politics is. I feel like we've had we have this sort of rosy version of what politics politics used to be. You know, gentlemen discussing things like you know, like you know, respectfully. I don't think anyone truly understands, like Nixon or Lyndon B. Johnson, how how they ran their campaigns into the 40s and 50s, how horrible it was. And I think, again, that that sort of plays into this notion that people just don't want to look into it and spend the time to actually get educated about it.
2: Well, the historical context is something that not a lot of people want to mess with, right? The politics of now are interesting because you can be passionate about it. You can react to it. Um, I was actually at the DNC. I spent all of my time with um, protesters. All of them sort of like lining up outside the DNC and banging on the fences and saying that they had stolen their vote. Um, I talked to one person, I said, do you realize that in, it was like, I believe in 1970 that George McGovern, uh, took the, the nominating process out of the so-called smoke-filled room, right? And actually they had primaries, so to speak. They actually just got the right to vote on a nominee in the 1970s. Um, superdelegates are an unfortunate reminder of that, right? And they're still sort of there and they still, I mean, they're about as undemocratic as it comes, but at the same time, Not a lot of people are looking at this from the historical context, the historical perspective. And part of the reason is that the media is not interested in that either. The media is churning out this story that goes in twelve hour cycles, right? We gotta get the story, we gotta get the story, we don't even remember what happened twelve hours ago. And that's one of the reasons why Trump has been able to build the sort of following he has, is because nobody calls him on the things that he has said. Nobody go I mean, there's even a trail of tweets now. I mean, this morning I was sitting there looking at all these contradictory tweets that he has that he didn't even bother to go back and get rid of he's changed his position on his relationship with Vladimir Putin like four times in the past two days right mm-hmm. we have such a short like memory span now it's like it's like gerbils like we can't even sit here and put these things into context and perspective to to gain new meaning and I I think that that speaks pretty badly.
1: Well, that said, that said, I have a feeling a lot of those Trump followers can quote a lot of things about Hillary over the last several years or Mm -hmm. even before that as well. So it's probably a little bit more related to selective uh, memory. Right. It's and again, it's almost like I mean, I I hate to use like the battered wife syndrome, but I've read, you know, stories of like, um, you know, like how about this wives who are are in such bad relationships, like, they could be shown pictures of their husband in bed with other women and they would simply say, no, it's not him, like, it, it's, it can't be him doing that to me. Like, that, you know what I'm saying? Like, it almost feels like that's where we've gotten to the point where, because, again, we know that, that yeah, they can remember things, for, you know, very specifically about Hillary Clinton that are very negative, and yet it doesn't even matter if anybody calls Trump on, on any of these things, right? I don't think it would, it would change their opinion one iota.
2: Well, I actually think, and I think Trump has sort of mastered that arena, right? But I would actually sit here and and I'll make this argument because I get I get accused very often of being biased, and I've actually been accused of taking George Soros's money, which is funny because um, man, I wouldn't have student debt if that were the case. Right? <laughs> um, but I will sit here and I will tell you that the left is guilty of that at times as well, right? Um, I actually would like a time of politics where we can talk about these things and put it in perspective. For instance, uh, Hillary Clinton was against gay marriage in a very huge way when she was running for Senate in in New York. It was one of her platforms. It was the defense of marriage and she was very stringent about this. Now I don't think that that disqualifies her or says that she necessarily is against gay people, but. I think we as a country should be able to have a conversation about how did this evolve, right? Take us step by step of how your opinion changed and that actually will tell us something about how this person could be president over a four or eight year span so we can make an informed decision about what type of leader they would be. But we're not interested in that, right? We're interested in scoreboard politics. We're interested in gotcha politics. We want want a quick hit, but we don't want the, the perspective around it.
1: I, I agree, and you're right. Listen, there are lots of warts uh, on Hillary Clinton as well. Um, I, I'm not that excited about the other, you know, the, either the candidates themselves. Uh, I mean, if it were me, I would, I would, I would hope that Michelle Obama would be running instead. I mean, she, maybe she will at some point. I have no idea, but she's the kind of person that it seems to inspire more than anybody on, on from this past week. But. Um, you know i kind of want to talk a little bit more about your experiences in the in the wandering around the the outside and amongst the people if you will um you know is it do you get the feeling like that the it's a media contrivance of these arguments like that we see that um, like maybe the media will see like two different random people from across the way and try and like steer them toward each other to sort of film something. Is that, does it feel that way? Because certainly, you know, our impression of the 60s and, and 70s when people would march and they would believe what they wanted and they, and they would be unified, to me it almost feels like it's, you know, sponsored by Starbucks, these, these, these protests.
2: I would actually go so far as, as to say that the highest rated TV show right now in America is America Fights. Right. It's it's how are Americans disagreeing and what are they going to say to each other? Uh, I was driving the other day and I had on one of those CNN punditry shows. Right. Where they have I mean, they bring on eight to ten people at a time. And for 30 seconds at a time, it's just them talking over each other. And we love it. Right. We love like getting into that arena and seeing this fighting Um, At the conventions, especially the Republican National Convention, because in the Democratic Convention, it was a weird setup where it was completely isolated, right? There weren't a lot of people like mixing and matching. At the Republican Convention, the media flocked. To anybody who was there and would obviously say controversial things, I saw people with uh, automatic weapon or semi-automatic weapons, assault rifles, guns oh, holsters.
1: By the way, you have to be careful yeah. about saying automatic weapons because the gun people will say, "Nope, automatic weapons aren't 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 legal." You don't see those.
2: Uh, believe me, I get lectured constantly on 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 what is debating language by these people. So uh, people would come there with long guns, if you want to call them that, right, strapped to their back and a immediately they would have the attention of like dozens of countries right on in in cleveland i wasn't there like an hour before a guy walked in with an ar-15 on his back and they were like i'm from iceland will you talk to us about why you have this gun and all of a sudden they have this uh, international platform to talk about their beliefs and then like the people you were talking about earlier who were yelling at this guy and degrading him they were getting interviews left and right you know, and the biggest and, and, and I thought it was incredibly irresponsible. I was on my way to Cleveland and the big conversation the entire time was Are they gonna burn Cleveland down? You know, how many people are gonna die? Is there gonna be blood in the streets? And you could almost hear this sigh of disappointment from the media when nobody died right it was like how could this have happened like what happened here and it is the old idea is if it bleeds it leads these people want american chaos and and they are so irresponsible in how they cover elections that's like clinton and trump their ratings depend on clinton and trump being closer than you think it should be right mm-hmm. like clinton more than likely is going to beat trump by a large margin but every single um, election in modern cable news times has always been treated like a horse race, even if it doesn't end up being. So they will actually influence how many people are going to vote for a person simply because they need that drama for the for the nightly news.
1: Yeah, that's a great point uh, and scary because so now the question then is, is the people that are getting that, that airtime, because they want the airtime. Um, but, you know, I, I think that there were radio shock jocks, those kind of guys who probably didn't believe half the things they said but knew it was ratings. But it definitely feels like the people that we're seeing now at these conventions, they actually, the difference is they do believe these horrible things they're saying.
2: Well, how could you not? You're told constantly that this is your reality, right? The message at the Republican convention was America is hell, right? Like terrorists are going to kill you. You can't get jobs. You're being discriminated against. Um, you have a party that is purely evil and may be in bed with terrorists, right? Um, If you watch and listen 24 hours a day, how could you not be convinced? They live in this alternate reality where violent crime is up in America. That is patently false, right? Mm -hmm. So they think, In and on top of that, they think that NATO or the New World Order is going to come for their guns. They need to, you know, um, defend themselves. If you hear that all the time, how do you not end up believing it? Because you have to do one of two things. You either have to say this is a media contrivance and here are the factors behind it, which is really complicated, right? I mean, that's a that's a crazy esoteric concept to have to come around on, but is true, or you have to say, no, why would they be lying to me? They're only reporting reality. I need to be careful, which is why you have this preponderance of, of preppers and gun hoarders and, and people who literally will say that America's on the wrong path and America's getting more violent. And, and it's not true. It's just not true at all.
1: Let me ask you this as we wrap up here. Um, it kind of feels like because, you know, you could... You know, it has this notion of uh, clockwork orange where you have to reprogram people, you know. And by the way, they'd be listening to this and thinking, "What's they have to reprogram me. I'm the one who's the problem. But it almost feels like, let me, let me put this in the basketball terms. It's Like, I believe that shooting the ball, you know, in front of your face, up and out like that is the right way to shoot it. And I suppose the the equivalent would be somebody came to me and insisted that if you bounce it off your ass into the basket, that would be a better way to make a basket. And my reaction would be you're crazy. It sounds like that's the same kind of reaction that a Trump supporter would have if you were to present actual, real, unbiased evidence and facts uh, to negate maybe some of his ideology. Yeah, they don't listen. They just straight up don't listen. And if I was going to sit here and
2: and because I get asked all the time, um, especially in the past like month and a half, what would I do? Right? How do I think that this could be turned back? What what do I think can make a difference? Um, I, I've been explaining to people lately, and I just found this out like uh, about a year ago, and I found it completely fascinating. And that is the fact that the United States government, like when it comes to products that have chocolate in it, right? There has to be a certain percentage of chocolate in a substance for it to be called chocolate, right? If it's below a certain number, it's (laughs) chocolaty. They can call it chocolaty and it's, you know, whatever. I think that's what news should be. I think you should have to put like a quotation mark around news until it's proven that you're presenting an unbiased reality. I think that these cable networks should have to list on their screen the people who fund them and their advertisers and and their sort of corporate interest And, and there should be something at the bottom of it that says this is not what somebody said or this is how it reacts. I, I think it's gotten to the point where this has to be something that, and I'm not saying government takeover of news, but I am saying there should probably be some sort of reality regulation that's there because they're seeing it unvarnished and they're accepting it face value. And as long as they're doing that, you're never going to have a conversation. And by the way, I think that goes for left and right. I, I think that I think that biased news one way or another is one of the most dangerous things we've got.
1: Well, we do have some websites that will, after the fact, go through it. And again, they clearly, again, does it really matter? Have we now rooted ourselves in certain ideologies so deeply, right, that it doesn't matter anymore? I think, I think we're all sort of battered and abused um, in this relationship And, you know, I I don't know if that's enough. Maybe in real time that might do something because certainly after the fact, it doesn't really seem to matter to anybody once it's solidified and hardened in their minds. You know, this is like, you know, yeah, it's a probably a bad I- I- thing. But like, if I were growing up in a Middle Eastern country, poor, with nothing to live for, you know, and and then I have these uh, clerics who are telling me how bad you know Americans are, like, I, I, that's going to be solidified in my brain, and probably nothing's going to change that. Or I, I, don't know, I or Again, I don't know what would. Is it well? Is it that dire? Are we are we at that much of a precipice here on, in society that we're that we're sort of intractable?
2: You know, it's funny you ask that. Before I started covering this election, I got a lot of grief from my friends and closest people telling me that I was a pessimist, right? I looked at this system and I said it's irrevocably broken. There's just no way to fix this. We're looking at the decline of of, of the republic. And by the way, there's a very real possibility that's true. We might be in the winnowing days, but, man, that sounds awful. But (laughs) I will say... (laughs) that the more that i've covered this election the more that i and it's so awful and it's so grim that i've had to actually sort of counter my own pessimism by sort of sort of seeding myself with positive possibilities right or or pragmatic solutions I, I think in the same way that consumers in a free society have what's called change points. Okay? So like you and I probably have brands that we're very loyal to without even realizing it, right? Like I'm a Crest guy. I'll buy Crest toothpaste or, or a certain type of toilet paper or whatever. We have these sort of alliances and beliefs that we hold without even realizing why we hold them, whether it's advertising or societal constructs. We have change points. And these are points in our lives where, like, you have a kid, you get a new job, you move, and there are these points where you can change. It doesn't happen very often, but it's these points where you can possibly make inroads towards a different decision. I think politics works like that, too, right? I think something like a a September 11th changes people's politics. Mm -hmm. I think... Um, I think like an economic boom like changes people's politics. I think there are things that happen that can positively or negatively influence the direction of the country. And I have to imagine that with the next generation rolling in, growing up in a in a time of progressivism and PC culture, I, you have to think that the next generation is going to move left. That they're going to push inclusive you know sort of politics i think that'll change things and obviously i mean we're only days away anymore from major world shocking moments i have to believe that there are change points that are coming they give us opportunities. Will we take them? I'm not sure. I mean, it's, it's Winston Churchill who said, you know, Americans will exhaust every opportunity before, uh, you know, choosing the right one. Right. 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 And, and I think there is a, a certain part of this country that isn't going to come out of this funk. But I have to assume that there are more of us who will and that there are parts of them who are going to improve.
1: Well, I'm glad that we could wrap up on that note, because certainly otherwise it wouldn't be, you know, at the end of the Republic. And, you know, listen, Rome fell as well, and they didn't think that was going to happen. So. Um, you know, a really great conversation. I think something that's worthy of having, you know, again, <laughs> as we move on to the election. It, to me, it looks like she would win in a landslide as well. But again, you know, these polls now indicate uh, something different. Apparently, 538 was saying that whoever whoever is in the lead three weeks from now will win the presidency. Like, it's pretty <laughs> much rock solid historically. So uh, that said, I don't think the, the one wild card we think we have is that these Trump supporters are people who never would vote normally, right? So mm-hmm. we have a problem with that, where anything historical doesn't necessarily apply. Um, but anyhow, I, Jared, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and, and really giving us insight. Um, you know, we should do this again sometime.
2: Hey, anytime.
1: You got it. Well, and don't forget, sports fans, that Bball Breakdown. We're not a channel. We are a conversation. You in? Are you in, Jared? I'm in.